Welcome to All Points in Between, the travel podcast that this week is mangling the history of a proud nation. Aiding me in this act of vandalism is returning champion, Matt. Hello. Hi, Matt. You might have heard the episode that I put out last week, possibly not, because there's only about six people who listen to it. But I was talking a little bit about Albania and particularly its capital, Tirana. And I thought I'd have you on just as a fellow history nerd. The title of this episode is going to be Albanian History by Non-Albanian Non-Historians. But we have a keen interest (laughs) in the subject. Yeah, Albania's got a very interesting history. I'll be honest, I'm not an expert in it, but I know they have a lot of uh, interesting wars and stuff going on. So, yeah. Looking forward to learning more. Yeah, there's certainly been quite a lot going on there over the last couple of thousand years or so. Most of what I'm going to be talking about today is based on an article that I originally wrote about Tirana back in 2020 when I was there. And I'm just going to be running through the history of the country, really as I saw it when I visited the National Museum, which is in the centre of town, and just gives a good overview of the country's history. With what I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to stop in around 1945. And that's just because in the previous episode, when I was talking about Tirana and the city, I talked quite a lot about what happened during the Hoxer era. And I don't really want to be retreading those points again. But anybody who is listening who wants to hear about that, go back and listen to episode one. We can wait. So it's a prequel then? It is, yes, it is indeed. I am doing a George Lucas. Excellent. Um, I'll be the Jar Jar Binks of this one then. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Oh, I, we do have a king called King Zog. And I think <laughs> a name like King Zog, he can be our Jar Jar Binks. That's a great name for a king. Yeah. It, if you're king, you can just quit yourself wherever you want, right? <laughs> oh, it is. It is an awesome name. There's also just after the communist era, there is quite a lot of interesting history that happens in the country during the 1990s and um, really up to the present day. But again, not really going to be touching on that here. Um, There is quite a good episode of a podcast called Lions Led by Donkeys that do an episode that's all about Albania in the 90s. So anybody who's interested in that era, they can have a bit of a go at that. So now that I've finished telling you what I'm not going to do, I'll tell you what I am. <laughs> and also apologies in advance to any Albanians that might be listening to this because I'm going to mispronounce absolutely everything and probably also miss out huge chunks of important stuff from the country's history because I'm essentially retelling this from what I found interesting as I was walking around these museum exhibits. But we'll see how we go. So the National Museum itself sits to the north of the main square in Tirana, um, Skanderbeg Square. Before arriving in the country, I didn't really know much about Albania. And I'm sure most, you know, even quite well-read Brits can't really say much more about Albania than that it's a poorish country by European standards. It's in the Balkans. Its main national pastime seems to involve being invaded by Serbians or Greeks or Turkish or Italians about every generation or so. But it was with this in mind that I was quite looking forward to finding, spending a couple of hours finding out what 
lights Albanians were hiding under under their bushel. The first wing of the museum covered the pre and ancient history of the region. And the plaques that were on the walls, they put a lot of emphasis on Albania's links to this civilization that's called the Illyrians. Mm. Um, it's, it is a civilization that was never really a country or an empire as such, unless at, you're able to contradict me on that. But, yeah, no, I, I, I've heard of the Illyrians. Um, when I've looked into Roman history, there's always been talk of, you know, like wars with them and that sort of thing. But they weren't like, I've not heard of, I've, I mean, I think they had chieftains and kings and stuff. Um, I know that um, Pyrrhus came from nearby. I don't think he was, he wasn't Illyrian though, he was Greek. So yeah, I, I, I don't know much about them, but they are, they definitely are mentioned a lot in Roman history. Yeah. And the understanding that I, get from it is that Illyrian was basically a catch-all term for anybody who was living in the Balkans before the mm. Greeks and the Romans who yeah. kind of yeah. liked making sculptures and didn't live nomadically but every country does have these myths about themselves um, us Brits we were particularly prolific at putting ours together in the 19th century and since Albania did start being a a thing in the modern sense in 1912 it's always put quite a lot of emphasis on these kind of vague pre-roman peoples as one of the bases of the albanian culture and what i found surprising was that even the communist government did really push the line that the illyrians are your kind of proto-albanians and essentially the main reason they were doing that is because it's quite handy in suppressing Greek separatists in the south, building up connections mm. with Albanians who were living in Yugoslavia at the time. But, yeah, there's little that can really be said about the people who lived in the region, other than that it's pretty certain that they wouldn't have actually referred to themselves as Illyrian, because, as you mentioned, Matt, that, that term was actually coined by the Greeks. So the tribes and the kingdoms in the Western Balkans at the time, they were largely agrarian societies, and a handful of them did grow to become small city-states. As the classical period wore on, these disparate groups began to be absorbed into their Greek neighbours to the south, particularly during the era of Alexander the Great and the Kingdom of Macedonia, there'd be quite a lot of expansion into what became modern Albania. And then from around the late 3rd century BC, the Romans rock up in the country and start getting up to some pretty serious Romaning in the region. <laughs> By the middle of that century, they'd taken control of basically the whole of Western Balkans, which, to go back to one of our favourite historical reference points, Total War, is also <laughs> something that you can do with the blue team in that. Yeah, the old skippy eye. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, the There were several uprisings against the Empire during this period. Um, the one that was given quite a lot of attention in the museum was one led by this guy called Beto the Desiate, um, which I've, I'm just going to call Beto because it's easier. In, and his uprising happened in the years 
shortly after we moved from being BC to being AD. And when I was in the museum, I found myself stood at the foot of this giant statue of the man himself. And he looks exactly like you'd expect a leader from antiquity to look. Had kind of massive arms, like tree trunks, washboard abs, luxurious beard of a rebel. So essentially came from central casting as the stereotypical ancient national hero, heartthrob kind of guy. And I'm sure he did actually look like that. <laughs> so the uprising itself, it began after the Romans attempted to muster an army from the region to go and fight in their German colonies. And the locals... They weren't all that keen on having their heads removed by screening Germans with battle axes. And so instead they decided that they were going to take their chances against the Roman legions. Um, they told their masters what part of their anatomy they could insert their conscription order into. Along with several other rebellious tribes, Beto and his tribe fought an insurgency against the Romans, which they managed to hold up for about three years or so. But Eventually, facing superior numbers, collapsing supply lines, they were forced to surrender. Um, the funny thing is that it does link back to an event that, Matt, you might be aware of, given that you are a bit of an ancient history buff. But the surrender itself of these final tribes, it happened about several days before the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, which... Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, in one day, about 20,000 of Roman's finest troops were ambushed and then decapitated by the above-mentioned screaming Germans. And it's probably somewhere where Beto and a lot of his mates would have ended up had they taken their conscription orders. <laughs> which That's interesting. I, yeah, which I, I found quite, yeah, quite funny. Um. After this, Beto himself was sent to the town of Ravenna in northern Italy. And the museum isn't really that clear about what happened to him after that point. But I imagine he ended up as a head on a spike somewhere. Still, at, at least this way, he did go down in history as a national hero rather than just being an anonymous head on a spike somewhere in Lower Saxony. So perhaps it worked out better for him. And he certainly founds, um, he's certainly now one of the founding characters in the Albanian story. Further into the museum, the exhibitions turn more towards medieval history. And this is, this starts to be the period where things begin to emerge that can be more definitively linked to the modern country of Albania. It was on this part of the museum that I did encounter my only other human companion throughout all of these centuries of history. I was there in the summer of 2020, which was time where they weren't really getting that many tourists. And so at this point, I did have a museum staff member join me and essentially just follow me from room to room. I'm assuming to make sure that I didn't nick anything. But it did mean that I had to make sure that I took plenty of time looking at the exhibits in each room so they didn't feel like they were playing musical chairs as I was rushing them around. So it did mean that I was able to take a bit more on board. The first entity that 
can really be called an Albanian state in any meaningful sense, emerged in the 12th century, and it was called the Principality of Abanon. Um, it was carved out of the Byzantine Empire, as it was at the time, um, and joined the you know, Catholic part of Europe. It covered much of the centre of the, of the modern-day country. It included the site of modern-day Tirana, so capital of Albania. And it's during this period that we also started seeing the eagle being used as the emblem for the region. So the Albanian flag has this quite spelt-looking, cool, double-headed eagle flag. But the one that I saw in the museum, it looked a bit more like an overfed pigeon, really, rather than the much cooler-looking one that they have today. But it was a start. Arpadon itself, it maintained its independence for around 60 years or so. And it was the first of about 11 different proto-Albanias to emerge over the next 300 years or so. Most of these referred to themselves as principalities, but there were a couple which styled themselves as despotates, which I think is a national adjective that has tragically fallen out of favour. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm... it's normally used in reference to when you get a splinter from the from the Byzantines, they normally they normally would have had that title. So it's interesting. Maybe it's like a indicating whether they were you know which side they're aligned with. I get the impression it was kind of like a border province, right? It was kind of like choosing sides between bigger powers. Um, yeah, that's it. It was kind of sometimes linked in with the Byzantine Empire at this point. Um, obviously, a little further on in the future, it's going to become part of the Ottomans, but. Yeah, perhaps, as you say, maybe they'd call themselves principalities if they were a bit more Catholic-facing, and then despotates if they were a bit more Byzantine-facing. Mm. But no, I'd, I'd never heard of it as a term before, and I, I just thought it was really cool. <laughs> but, it's a cool title. Yeah, if, if I ever have a country, then I think I might have to relaunch that as, a, as an adjective for the country. <laughs> So, what does make you a despot, though? <laughs> yes, of course, I would be a despot if I was running my own country. <laughs> <laughs> but where, where else called themselves that then? Like, was it was it just a thing with these border provinces then? Uh, it was a title used by the Byzantines, so that they it was kind of the equivalent to a king, I think. Um, so yeah, that I think in Greece there was a despot at one point, um, especially around when the Latins there was this sort of brief Latin Empire, uh, and the uh, the Byzantine Empire split into three separate uh, entities. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it was variously used. I'm not a hundred percent sure if there was like a particular re you know rules behind it or anything, but it, it's definitely a title I've seen used in association with the Byzantines. In Crusader Kings. Or yep. more, more broadly. <laughs> no, no, more broadly than that. More broadly than that. No, I mean when, when you're reading about um, history, I, I, like I say, I'm going off of memory now, but I've, I'm fairly sure after Const Constantinople fell, a lot of the remaining um, like nobles and stuff would try and carve out little despotates or little little states um, that were sort of tolerated by the Ottomans to a varying degree until they finally got pissed off with them and decided to yeah. <laughs> roll over. <laughs> Yeah, which does bring us quite nicely onto the next bit of the history that I had written. Um, so 
after this brief flowering of Albanian proto-states, the Byzantine Empire ended up being replaced by the young and expanding Ottoman Empire. And this did keep a lid on any further nonsense like expecting to be in charge of your own country for quite a long time. It wasn't really until the 19th century when the Ottomans themselves had, by that point, become the wheezy old sick man of Europe that you started to see things beginning to kick off again in Albania. During this period, the country began agitating for more autonomy and ultimately independence from the rapidly declining empire in Istanbul. The nationalist cause was led by a series of gloriously mustachioed men whose names are pretty difficult to commit to memory. I do have them written down and I will have a go at reading them but i will probably get them completely incorrect and cut this section they included names like nuam i'm gonna put these in the chat so that matt can follow me (laughs) yeah i've heard of one so that it doesn't you already mentioned him though scanderbeg oh yeah yeah the um national hero from the middle ages yeah yeah with with indeed the square named after him right oh wow as as guest i'm going to give you the honor of reading these names of early albanian national uprising leaders (laughs) all right let's give it a go so go for it the first one i'm going to say noam vekil harksi i i think that's I think that's about as well as I could do with that. Yeah. And then we've got the next one looks like a rendering of Constantine's. It's Costandin Christophordi. Uh and then the final one is Zef Jubani. Oh that that one's actually yeah fairly easy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, right, the, the final I... one's just Steve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Steve the Albanian rebel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I need those at some point later on, then I'll have to just cut that section and input your readings. <laughs> that would be perfect. Just my voice just saying the name. By the way, I found out what a despot is. It's the Greek word for lord, and it started out as uh, the title they would give to the heir. So, but it did. Oh, it was like I said. Eventually, they used to, they established them like principalities. Instead of having a prince of a principality, you have the despot of a despot despotate. Yeah, uh, so so it really is just a direct translation of Prince. principality because it's yep. yeah run by the air. Ah. But it's yeah, so it, it's just Greek. It's just the Greek uh, rendering of it. No, uh, see, I, I think it sounds a lot more fun if you do just think of it as being a modern day equivalent of despot. But <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's uh, where the word comes from. Yeah. Oh, there you go. I have learned something. So the nationalist cause was led by these guys who Matt just pronounced perfectly on my behalf. And the wing of the museum that is dedicated to this, it's full of portraits of them standing very heroically in mountain passes, holding those long, very well-decorated rifles and wearing the traditional dress, which is kind of white, loose-fitting clothes, a little waistcoat and fez. And they pretty much all wear that. One 
driving factor that was pushing Albania towards staking its claim for independence was that around this time, Greece was seceding from the Ottoman Empire. And the Greek cause, it had had a lot of support from European elites across, well, across the continent, really, who'd been brought Yeah, yeah, Lord Byron, who famously died during the independence war while attempting to have a romantically flamboyant death in battle, but ended up dropping dead of malaria, much like most of his less well-read troops that he had with him. That's every war. Every war that you know, they always expect to die in battle, and most just die of disease. They they sure do. It's it's something like nine out of ten people throughout history, isn't it, who go to war yeah. end up just dying of a horrible disease. And um, yeah, indeed, They're fighting it, the wrong thing, Martin. We are, they should be fighting yeah. germs. The war on the germs. Yeah, <laughs> and Greece did have this degree of support from around Europe and it did lead to Greece successfully becoming independent and Albania tried to kind of ride on the coattails of that really the other factor was increasing Russian influence over their Slavic neighbours to the north particularly Serbia as it developed into a regional power and so by the close of the century Albania had the ideological basis for an existence had domestic and somewhat international support. It had also developed its very handsome new flag, the an original which I saw hanging in the museum. And so the pieces, they were all in place for a good old-fashioned uprising, Desiate style. So between 1909 and 1911, there was a campaign of civil disturbances, which never quite boiled over into guerrilla warfare during which the leaders of the uprisings produced a series of demands that they put to Istanbul. These were made up of your standard nationalist demands, recognise our language, put locals in government jobs, treat us as if we're worth more than farm animals, you know, those kind of things. As the momentum built, a man named Hassan Pristina called an assembly which set out the groundwork for the independence. Over the next six months, the... Hang on, I've got a note. One of, one of the things with this is I've put these little stars in for notes that are at the end of the article, and then I've not actually copied and pasted them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, it was quite a boring note anyway. Just... <laughs> <laughs> if you wanted I'm to just... do that bit again. We're running out of time, by the way. Yeah, um, that's that's okay. I'll, I'll set up a new one yeah. if, you know, if we have a bit of time. Yeah, definitely. No, it... Yeah, no, it was quite a dull note. It was just say that Hassan Pristina and um, Pristina are interchangeable names for the capital of Kosovo. So hmm. now you know that. One with an H, one without. Hmm. Um, although having said that, apparently it's a coincidence that Hassan Pristina also led the Albanian rebel force that occupied the city during the uprising. And the University of Pristina in Pristina is named after Hassan Pristina, but not after the city of Pristina. <laughs> because I think I followed that. <laughs> because Bal- Balkan history is sensible like that. Mm. Oh, well. Right, now I've got to scroll back up to where I was. Yep, yeah, so anyway, this guy, Hassan, let's just call him, 
he called this assembly to set out the groundwork for independence. Over the next six months or so, these uprisings continued and Albanian rebels occupied Skopje in modern-day Macedonia. Well, North Macedonia now. Um, but come November, there still wasn't a lot of clarity over whether the uprisings were for increased, increased autonomy within the Ottoman Empire or if they were going for full independence. So at the end of that month, the National Assembly was called in the city of Valar, which is kind of the main port city on the coast. Well, obviously, on the coast, it's a port city, but the the main um, town where boats go. And they did... <laughs> shippy place. I prefer the term shippy place, Martin. Shippy. <laughs> they, the National Assembly met at the shippy place and eventually <laughs> decided to rip off the plaster and declare full independence whilst riding their ships in the shipping place, presumably. Yeah, and there you have it. Two millennia of imperial occupation, a failed uprising or ten, banger of the flag, and you end up with a country all of your own. Simple as that. As everybody knows, nation building is pretty much the simplest things that it's pretty much the simplest thing that humans do as a species. Bring together a vast group of strangers, convince them that they're all part of a larger whole to which they should be pledging loyalty, paying taxes, and on occasion going to war and dying for. It's such a basic task that almost nobody has ever screwed it up to the extent that it costs millions of people their lives. And it won't in Albania, I'm sure, over the next century that we're going to talk about. Anyway, by this point in my trip around the museum, I must admit I was beginning to get a bit of history fatigue. In short, Albania gets buffeted around during the First World War. It is occupied by almost every major participant at some point or other. And then in the years after 1918, there's a series of staggeringly dual-sounding conferences, which were essentially to confirm the borders, which have more or less survived to the present day. And they also facilitated Albania's entry into the League of Nations in 1920. We now have a country that is internationally recognised by the end of the war. At this point, there is blah, blah, conferences, meetings, local politicians throwing the weight around. Nothing that really held my interest at the time for more than a second or two. But what did grab my interest was an exhibit on a man named Amet Zogu, who enters the scene around this time. And as we've already mentioned, some Brits might have heard of this man by his future job title, because the name King Zog does tend to stick in the mind. But beyond that, I don't think the story of his life is that well known outside of Albania. I don't know, Matt, if you know any more about him than that he has an amusing name no uh literally that then we have a good start and his life is pretty interesting hence why i ended up spending a lot of time hanging around that exhibit and writing i don't know essentially a short biography of him but we'll run through yeah i suspect that Part of the reason why his story isn't that well known outside Albania is that it would inspire despair in people like me who feel like they've achieved something in their day if they cook a meal more complex than opening a bag of crisps. Mr. Zogu's story is the sort that leaves people comparing their own lives to it and just feeling like a bit of a slob 
because of it. But, of course, that is also what makes his story interesting. There is a big section about him in the museum, so we'll go through his life. So, Zogu was born into a landowning family near the town of Burel, which is about 60 miles or so north of Tirana. As the feudal rulers of the region, the family did have a degree of power within the country. His mother claimed to be descended from Skanderbeg of the square fame. And his story certainly isn't one of rags to riches, but a family like his, they're not exactly big dogs in the political world either. The fiefdom was in a region called Matt, spelled M-A-T, <laughs> which is also part of the reason why I got you on, because we are talking about the country that you should be from. It, <laughs> it's a kind of small to medium-sized province in the country, um, it was considered a bit of a backwater by the ruling Ottomans at the time. And typically, this kind of landowner lives the fairly comfortable life of a minor aristocrat. They produce a handful of semi-inbred children and eventually die. Then they don't really leave any deeper mark on history than any of the peasants who toiled for them. But at the age of 16, Zogu came into his inheritance when his father died in 1911 at the age of 50. Within a year of that, he was representing his province at that confidence at the shippy place town that we talked about earlier, Valare, where the National Declaration of Independence was signed up. During the First World War, he saw quite a bit of action. He headed a small nationalist army that was allied with the Austro-Hungarians, which is probably not the side that you want to be on during the First World War, because they were pretty much the most naff army in the whole war. So, But given that they are your next-door neighbour, probably not a whole lot of choice about who you end up fighting with. But the Albanians did actually do pretty well in this. They secured a series of victories. They managed to carve out a bit of a stronghold for independence to back up the 1912 declaration. And it was at this point that Zogu did go to his loyal allies of Austria and Hungary and asked them if they'd be, you know, okay with Albania being a country. And the Austrians, they responded to this as all good friends do by banning political meetings, shooting some Albanian military officers, and arresting Zogu, who spent the rest of the war detained at the pleasure of his ally. In the years after the war, Albania was under occupation. It was split between Greece, France, and Italy. Greece and Italy kind of make sense, because they are essentially neighbour countries, but I suppose France, they were on the winning side, so... They also get a chunk. While the occupying powers didn't really do much to facilitate the Albanian cause, the post-war map of Europe, which had granted independence to a string of countries from the Baltic down to the Adriatic, kind of showed where the winds were going to be blowing. So this is the whole kind of post-World War One Woodrow Wilson creating a Europe of nations philosophy, which also never went on to cause anything bad to happen either. 
the country was effectively independent again by 1920, at which point, as I mentioned, it goes and joins the League of Nations. And the museum that I went to, it takes quite a pro-Zogu stance, as you can imagine. found a few articles that were a bit more critical of him. But both the pro and the anti-sources agree that he spent the next few years shuttling between his political duties as Ministry of the Interior and battling insurgents who perhaps weren't as keen on the idea of being Albania as he was. During this period, he also found time to serve as Prime Minister, which at the age of 27 makes him still the youngest Prime Minister in that country's history, and probably one of the youngest Prime Ministers of any country's history, I think. By 1924, the situation had calmed down a bit, and Sogu and his allies had come out on top of conflicts. It was also in this year that he survived his first assassination attempt. So it's reported that across his life, Zogu racked up somewhere in the region of 600 blood feuds against him. Wow. Are, are, you, are you familiar with the concept of a blood feud? Uh, vague. I mean, you know, I've heard about it from other other cultures and stuff, but I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's a difference uh, in, in, in Albanian. So. Um, yeah, th- there's something that were pretty common at the time in Albania, and... I think it's because a lot of the country is quite remote and rural and there's not necessarily law enforcement as such. Mm. Yeah. It tends to be in those sort of regions where you get these, where you get this phenomenon of blood feuds. Yeah. And essentially they're honour-based obligations to murder somebody for usually a defined series of wrongs. So you know, perhaps they've killed a relative or dishonoured, you know, somebody who you know or something along those lines. But like I say, he was able to rack up about 600 of these throughout his life. So assassination attempts naturally became a semi-regular feature in Zogu's life after this. The instance in 1924 involved him being shot in his hand and his hip whilst he was entering the parliament chamber. Depending on the source you read, Zogu insisted on giving his speech in the debate before being taken away for medical treatment. Although there doesn't seem to really be any first-hand footage of the incident, so I can imagine that his speech was probably pretty short, limited to the Albanian for bloody hell that hurt, and then he got taken to hospital. But it's history, you be the judge. Upon recovering from his wounds... Sogu decided that he would once again head up north and spend a bit of time on his favourite hobby of twatting rebels. And when he returned to Tirana in 1925, the parliament then elected him as the country's first ever president. So over the next few years, he and his government worked to smooth things out with some of the internal rebels in the country and also make sure they were getting international recognition for the country's borders. So particularly with Greece and what had emerged as Yugoslavia by this point. By 1928, the government was considered stable enough that they decided it was time they got themselves a king. As was the custom at the time. As was the custom at the time. I'd have thought that 1928 is a bit late to be jumping on the king train. But I suppose quite a few of those... Quite a few of those countries that emerged after World War One did 
take on some, you know, some Habsburg who was out of a job at the time and give them a job as king, didn't they? But there were, a few, yeah, there were a few little kingdoms that popped up. I mean, you got Greece as well. Uh, I think that was a similar time, wasn't it? Yeah. Do they still have a king in Greece? No, they deposed him. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's uh, Prince Philip's family, so they fled to the the UK, I believe. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Well, they spent a bit of time in a certain other country as well. Um, yes. I think on the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, actually, speaking of potential Nazis, the, <laughs> roll... <laughs> the roll call of potential kings did for Albania did reportedly include the England cricketer C.B. Fry. He was a test cricketer at the time and he did claim to people on multiple occasions that he turned down the opportunity to rule Albania but he was also a serial embellisher and Nazi sympathiser who went to Germany to try and teach the Hitler youth to play cricket so his stories might need to be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt in the end it was pretty obvious who the crown was going to go to and it was given to President Zogu, who took on the title King Zog of the Albanians. So this guy is still pretty young. He was essentially starting his kinging career at the time when I'd just bought a motorhome and was feeling pretty proud about that. So he doesn't hang around this fella. Quite a lot of the information on this next part of his life comes from a short autobiography that the king recounted to a journalist in 1933. So, according to Zog himself, he really threw himself into his new job. He'd work 18-hour days in between dodging the odd assassination attempt from time to time. In the biography, he lists his two main achievements between his coronation and 1933. One of these was maintaining a more or less diplomatic equilibrium between the Balkan powers so that nobody was taking over anybody else. And the other main achievement that he listed at the time was that he refused to renew the Treaty of Friendship that Albania had signed in 1926 because, among other things, quote, the renewal of the treaty would be meaningless because of the sincere and straightforward policy between the two governments with Italy in 1926. On a completely unrelated note, Italy invaded Albania in 1939. Mm. Within five days, the country was under Italian control and Zog Zog and his family had to flee the country for Greece. Over the following months, the royal family picked their way across Europe, attempting to avoid the axis of France. A quite interesting story from the period is that at one point they escaped Paris with the aid of James Bond writer Ian Fleming. So another celebrity name drop comes in. And they eventually managed to make it to London, which remained their home after that until the end of the war. So although Albania didn't really put up much of a fight to the initial invasion by Italy, During the war, the partisan resistance there would become a persistent thorn in the side of the occupying forces. And really, the Balkan resistance movements, they were some of the most effective in Europe against the Nazis and, well, I suppose pretty much anybody is effective against Italians, but you've still got to give them credit for doing that. 
and with the communist takeover after the war, it was pretty clear that Zog wasn't going to be going back to Albania anytime soon. And his political career at this point came to an end. So he spent his remaining days living in luxurious accommodation in Paris, befitting of one of the world's richest refugees. Eventually, Zog shuffled off this mortal coil in 1961 at the age of 65, possibly aided by a rumoured 150 to 200 a day cigarette habit. Wow. I think I think cigarettes were smaller back then, but I found this assertion on a range of websites while I was researching this article that I wrote a couple of years back. But they all seem to be getting it from this Wikipedia article. Um, the Wikipedia article was itself supported by a dead link. So I'm not sure how much, um, how much credit to put into it, really. But, it's probably just big tobacco. They're just they're just sneaking it in everywhere. Oh, this person was a massive smoker. Oh, it, it's probably I don't know it's probably not something that you want to be associated with your brand, though, is it? If, um, no. if he ends up dying, perhaps True. it's yeah, perhaps the anti-cigarette lobby. <laughs> I was trying to work this out, and assuming that you can smoke a cigarette in two minutes, which you know with kind of the old, I don't know, like wood binds and stuff like that is probably fairly reasonable because they were quite a lot smaller. It would still mean that Zog was smoking for around five and a half to six hours solid every day. So yeah. it's possibly another fact that you need to take with a pinch of salt. So with that, one of the more interesting characters from the story is dead in, from Albanian history. And in terms of the rest of the museum and the Albanian history after this point, I think the Bunker Museum that I'd been to previously had already given me a good impression of what came next. And I talked about it in the last episode, so I won't go into loads of detail here. But there was lots of dissidents being sent to camps, people trying to flee the country, getting chewed up by guard dogs, citizens being paid to spy on their neighbours etc. The history part of the museum did end itself with the fall of the communist government in December 1990, which made it the last of the communist governments to be overthrown in that turbulent year that also saw Czechoslovakia, East Germany, I think Hungary as well, if I remember rightly, all going down within space of about 12 months. And then Albania does have quite an interesting history after that in the post-communist era where there were a lot of shady investment schemes built up. A lot of people lost a lot of money. There was kind of a low-scale civil war. But like I say, there's other people who've done better podcasts on that and were probably already running to time anyway. So I will leave us there with, with that history. It's Quite yeah, quite a interesting time. The museum itself in Albania is well worth visiting. So it's called the National Museum. It's in Skandbeg Square. At the time I went to visit, it was about two euros to get in there, and it does just give a really good overview of the country, particularly if you are new to Albania and you don't really know a lot about it. Like well, like neither of us did, or indeed probably still don't if <laughs> if any Albanians are listening. 
But it's a good starting point for that kind of cultural immersion, really. Anything else from you, Matt? I mean, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I guess I, I hadn't known much about Albanian history. I mean, you know, a little bits here and there from most of you from playing computer games. Um, but no, it's 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 good. it's interesting to learn more. And uh, thanks for thanks for telling teaching us all mine. That's no problem. And if you want to get in touch with us on this podcast, then you can do that either on Twitter at allpointscast. Or you can email at allpointspod at gmail.com. If you want to get in touch with Matt, then stand in a mountain pass with a musket and a waistcoat and a fez. Load your question into the end of the musket and fire wildly. And one of them will f- fly in the direction of Hampshire and eventually reach him. Maybe. Indeed. With that, I will leave to it. Thanks very much, Matt, for joining me. And I'll speak to you all again soon. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.